so I'm, I'm enjoying it, and uh, it's, uh, was it I'm Zach, right? Ezra. 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 I knew there was a Z in there. I met Ezra a few minutes ago, and he came in wearing these big rubber boots, and I was like, that's as main as I could have in my mind. Yeah. Like, the only thing he lacked was, like, one of those fishing hats, right, you know, right. like, okay. that was perfect. Um, so it's really good to be here. I grew up in... Uh, uh, really, God's country, uh, which is Wisconsin, of course. I didn't have to tell you that. Uh, but uh, we've lived in Minnesota for the last six years. This is my family here. Um, this picture's a little old. i got to get a new one now. It's about a year and a half old, so the boys all look young to me. Uh, but on the end is my wife, my Krisha. She's, uh, she's still in Minnesota this weekend. She didn't make it here with me. Um, and then next to her is our nephew, Javen, uh, who we've been raising since he was about 13. Uh, he's 18 now, um, and he's, uh, he's, he's a handful, man. He's fun, uh, sometimes. Uh, and then in the middle is our son, Babiel. He's 23, um, and he's, he lives in Minnesota, working, doing well, uh, loves loves Minneapolis, loves that whole deal. So he's uh, he's like a stereotypical millennial as you can get. Um, yes. so he's, he's doing his thing, man. And somehow he like he has a job, but he also makes money like flipping clothes on the internet. You know, like I don't know how you do that, but he does it. Um, and then on the end, um, that is our youngest. He's about 14 there. He just turned 16 now. Um, that's Elijah, um, and so uh, that's, yeah, that's the one. Um, he eats everything, <laughs> literally everything. So um, we, my wife and I, we both mostly have to work just to feed him. Um, so that's where we're at at this point. I want to jump in um, right away and tell you a story. Now, I'm assuming up here you guys have, like, team camp in the summer, right? You know, it's sort of a regional team camp. Yeah. Yeah. We have that in the Midwest, and we have it um, on a campgrounds in Illinois. And so there are three weeks. There's the young teens, the middle teens, and the older teens. And so you get about 200 kids at each camp, um, or thereabouts. And so... Uh, this is kind of a, a it's a, a true story in a sense. It's a little bit of a composite, but it's a true story. I, I like to go to camp every year and, and hang out. And, and typically, when the kids come in on Sunday afternoon, they all come to one building, and they check in there. And they get their little books with their cabin assignments, and this is where they're going to be. And then they're given instructions. Go down to your cabin, find a bed, Put your stuff neatly under the bed, get your swimsuit on, get ready for swim test and all that, put everything away, lay out your sleeping bag, put your pillow, and then go line up outside the cabin and your counselors will tell you what to do. So every year, kind of a similar thing happens. And you'll get, I usually do this cabin called Old Chapel, and you get 56 boys um, who go down and they're in one cabin. It's, it's that big. And so you can imagine if you go into a cabin with 50-some teenage boys, you would expect complete compliance and order, right? That's what, that's what you would expect as you walk in. Well, it never works out that way. You walk in, and you find, I mean, there are boys chasing each other. There are boys, like, hitting each other with mattresses. They're jumping, you know, they're doing flying elbows off. There are guys... You know, there's all sorts of things going on, right? Yeah. And so, one year in particular, and again, stuff like this happens all the time, but you, you had, um, we have a real diverse group in, in the Midwest, and you get big cities, little cities, ethnically, racially, anything you can imagine, we have diversity. So you'll get, you'll get kids from Detroit, in the central city, south side of Chicago, but then you'll also have kids from like Duluth, Minnesota, and Eau Claire, Wisconsin, you know, and they're all in a cabin together. And so you'll have these kids, and we had a, a, a white college counselor 
walk in, right? And he saw this, and he saw the chaos, and he's like, oh man, this is what they've just trained us for. We spent all day training. I've got to like be, you know, disciplined up front and get these kids in line, and then you can ease off as the week goes on, but you got to lay down the law early. So he comes in, and he sees this, and he starts, he raises his voice, and he's like, God, you heard the rules down there. Grab your stuff, get going, do what you need to do. Stop messing around. Now, I've noticed two very distinct responses. The kids from Duluth and Eau Claire tend to go, oh, sorry, and they grab their stuff and they throw them in the bed and they stand like this. And one year he yelled that, and there was a group of kids from the south side of Chicago. They were black kids. And one of them looked at him and said, who are you talking to? <laughs> now another choice had to be made. Yeah. He's like, I gotta, I gotta lay this down. He's like, I'm talking to you. Do what I said. You will not disrespect me in this cabin. I'm your counselor. Grab your stuff. Go now. And you want to know what this kid said? Yeah. He was like, bro, I don't know you like that. <laughs> now we had a conflict, right? Now, a conflict of that nature continues throughout the week. But here's the question. What's, what type of conflict is it? What's the cause? What are most people that are looking at that conflict going to attribute it to, especially if it continues throughout the week? By Wednesday or Thursday, it's going to be very easy for those young men to go, I know what the problem is. This dude is a racist. It's a race issue. And it can become one, right? But my question is, is, is that the underlying cause or the direct cause. Well, as an example, my wife and I, we grew up very differently. And very different cultural experiences, every kind of experience, right? And I grew up in a culture where it's, it's what's called an ascribed authority culture. In other words, certain people are in charge because they're just in charge. The role they have, they're the authority figure. You don't question it. If they're in control, you do what they say. And this is typified by a statement my dad would tell us quite often and remind us of, which is, when I say jump, you say... Now, you would think that's what he said. That is not what he said. His statement was a whole other level. He used to tell us, when I say jump, you say, when can I come down, sir? <laughs> because to say how high indicates that you are questioning whether you're actually going to follow the instruction or not. You just jump and then ask for directions later. <laughs> that, that was kind of how I was raised. And in, in experiencing my life, my wife's worldview, and how she grew up, she grew up in a very different culture. It's a cultural type called a achieved authority. You don't just trust someone. You're, you're not just in charge because of who you are. You earn respect. So if you give me respect, I'll give it back. But everything about her upbringing was, if you come yelling at me, like you're somebody, or you somehow have a position over me that I have not granted to you, then I have been trained to come back at you. That's how I was taught, right? So this is the way my wife was raised up. So we would have, as young disciples, we'd have sort of different experiences because the ministry leader would be like, go do this. And I'd be like, okay. And she's like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. And I'm like, no, you're going to create problems. Just come on, dude. You know what we're supposed to do. And so you see in that camp example, you see an example of uh, two different views of cultural approach to authority causing a conflict which can then later take on racial overtones and the like but if we don't understand the cause of it we can't really get to the the root of it and solve the situation okay culture can cause a, a lot of and we're gonna we're gonna talk about culture in these two sessions it can cause a lot of uh, issues and conflicts uh, in the first session, we're going to focus on the idea of culture and, and particularly how it affects us within the church body. And then in the second session, we're going to focus on uh, race and the kingdom of God and how that will impact us, those topics, outside of the church as we go up into the world. So cultural conflicts can happen not just across 
racial or ethnic lines or things like that, right? You can have brothers of the same ethnic group that grew up differently, let's say, get in a discipling relationship together, right? And so now we're in a discipling relationship together, and we sit down, and I came from a very, say, indirect communicative culture, and you came from a direct one. And so to you, it's respectful to just, I'm just going to shoot straight, tell you like it is, not cut any corners, and let's just get to it. But I wasn't raised that way. I don't communicate that way. So now we sit down and talk, and you just say something bluntly and direct to me, and I walk away and go, Glenn is unloving and unspiritual and unkind. I can't be in a relationship with him. And we think we're having a spiritual conflict, but once again, it's a cultural difference mm -hmm. that we cannot recognize, and so we don't, we don't know how to address it. Does that make sense? Right? Okay. And so I'm convinced that about 75% of the conflicts we have in the church are actually because it's cultural and we're simply unaware of it. We attribute it to other things. Or it could happen on a group level. This is just a simple example. Let's say you have a church that is uh, diverse in its makeup uh, in, in all different ways. Um, but let's focus for, for the sake of this example. Let's say you have a church that's uh, primarily what we would call light and uh, another group that we would call African American. And an event happens during the week, one of those unfortunate events that makes the news and there's a conflict between, say, a white police officer and a young black man that ends in a tragic, violent death. And people view that, you know, differently, but that's not even the point of this illustration. What's going to happen on Sunday? Yeah. It's been in the news all week. You come in, and you get ready to worship on Sunday, and typically speaking, white culture churches, you go to church to get away from the bad news out there, Right? You, you come to escape that, to leave it behind. Church is, is to worship and focus on God. And you'll even hear preachers say, like, you know, I know there's a lot going on in your life right now, but just clear your minds of those distractions, and we're going to focus on God. And that's what church is for and why you come, right? But typically speaking, not always, but typically speaking, black churches, African-American churches are the exact opposite. You come to church to talk about those things. To, it's the one place you could go historically and have a safe conversation about what's going on in the world and the reality. Where's God in the midst of all this injustice and how are we going to approach real life and deal with the things out there? So church is a place where you come to talk about it. Now you come on Sunday and you have a church that's maybe predominantly, the leadership is a predominantly white culture. They don't even think about it. And they get up and they just, we're just going to ignore all that. We're going to preach the word of God because that's what you do at church. And now you have half of the church going, but that's, I know what it is. They don't care about us. They don't care what we're dealing with or going through. And the, the, the start of the cause, at least, is simply a cultural difference between what the purpose of church is for. Does that make sense? Yep. Now, that's not to say that explains everything, because there might be, you know, just an unwillingness to hear a different perspective that other things can come in, but I'm just using one narrow example, right? And so if we're not aware of these differences, yeah. they can cause real deep divide. It's kind of like our roads. Your roads seem pretty good here, so I don't know if there is the same. Okay. But in Minnesota, we just had a brother, a friend of mine from Lagos, Nigeria, came, and he was like, oh, your roads are like Lagos. And I was like, only for one month out of a year. Because what happens is, you know, the, the ice gets in there, right? And the water, and then it freezes, and it breaks, and then the plows come through it. And by March, it's like the roads are, like, unbelievable. <laughs> until like April when they come and fill them all in, right? See, if things get in there, they start to create cracks. And if we're not aware of these cultural things, they can create problems. Why talk about culture and race? A lot of times when I go places, um, you guys seem pretty open and pretty here and ready and let's talk about it. But a lot of times you'll hear things like this. Isn't that going to be a minefield? 
Why? I, 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 I can't tell you how many church leaders I've had say, you know, I thought about, but it's just going to be divisive to talk about that. Yeah. Aren't we going to make a race issue out of the gospel issue? Let's just get back to the gospel. Well, first of all, I would say healthy families talk. If you have, let's say, a marriage, and there's stuff that you can't talk about, that's the level to which you have a degree of unhealth in your marriage. Right? If, if one spouse comes and says, we need to talk about this stuff, and the other one goes, no, we're not talking about that, that's a problem. Or if there's an area where it's like, we just don't talk about that in this friendship or in this marriage. Healthy families are able to talk about everything. And we have to get to that point. Now, sometimes, as you know, in a relationship, to have that really deep, difficult talk creates more bumps in the short term. Yeah. But that's how you get to long-term health, right? Um, we'll talk about why this is God's plan more in just a minute. But I think it's a great strength of our family of churches that God has given us a diverse nature of people. And we don't want to turn that into a weakness. Now, one of the things is, let me say here, just because you have a multiracial church does not mean that you're multicultural or inclusive. Right? Mm. Not, you can have people there visually, but that doesn't mean that they have a voice or an equal voice or, or are included. And I think that's really important for us to consider because 20 years ago, when my wife and I first walked into the Milwaukee Church of Christ and we saw a racially diverse church, we went, whoa. And you hear a lot of people my age say that. We walked in and we went, wow, a multiracial church. This is this is home. We're staying here. We've never seen anything like that. And in Milwaukee, we hadn't. Milwaukee always finishes first or in the, in the top in like most segregated cities in the country. And so we had never seen that. But I think nowadays people aren't so impressed by simply multiracial groups. They're everywhere. They're looking, they walk in and they go, what is it inclusive? Or is it just a white culture church? that has a mixed, yeah. you know, color of people in it. Now, what is the gospel all about? Let me just sum this up really quickly in four parts, and we're going to focus on kind of the middle two for right now. Uh, I'd love to have time to go more into the first one, but uh, I, I don't have that. And by the way, in any of these stuff, I think Glenn mentioned it, uh, some of what we're going to talk about today is in my book, which we do have here this weekend, if you want, Crossing the Line. Um, and then some of this is gonna, um, will come from a book that is upcoming. It's in the final uh, sort of whatever editing production phase right now called All Things to All People. Um, but the purpose that God made us for as humanity is to be image bearers. That means we reflect and do God's will. That's, that's what we were made to do. Animals were made to follow instinct and their own will to, you know, to go that route, we were made to actually do and reflect God's will. So when human beings say, oh, I just want to follow my heart or follow my gut or look, you know, do what's best for me, that's actually what animals were made to do. So we're reducing ourselves in role. We were made to reflect God's will. So as a humanity, we were made to work together in unity to rule over God's creation, Amen. to take care of it, right? That's our purpose. Now, God made us with incredible differences, but we're still to work together as partners in this represent mm. representation of God's will. Now, that goes offline in Genesis, right? Because humanity starts to act like the animals. Mm. We start to look out for our own self-interest and what feels right to us and some of those things. And so instead of us being over the animals, Genesis 3 pictures an animal being over us, and everything's turned on its head, and that breaks us up into faction and division and violence and misunderstanding and all these problems that we have, right? And so, in, so God sort of wipes the slate clean. We're given this Genesis 6 and 7 in the flood and, and to deal with human rebellion against God and against each other and all this. And, and there's a fresh start, and then mankind turns right back around and starts rebelling against God. And there's this, 
this vision of battle where mankind says, no, we're not going to do it God's way. We're going to do it our way and we're going to fight against God. And so God comes in and says, this is even worse than the first rebellion. Okay, I'm going to split you up and separate you out, but that's not God's ultimate plan for humanity. That's because of sin. And so what we see then is the very next chapter, God comes in and finds this guy, Abraham, Abram, and says, all right, through you, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to gather the nations. That's my ultimate plan is to bring people back to represent me, to be blessed in me and represent working together to care for my creation. But there's a very important message that's sent through that, which is this. You know how we stand up at weddings and at some point, oftentimes a minister will go, what God has brought together, let no person tear asunder, right? Well, the opposite's also true. What God has torn apart, let no human being try to put together. See, it was God who divided us because of our rebellion. And he comes to Abraham and says, I will bless the nations and gather them together. Human beings have been trying to do it in different ways for thousands of years. We'll bring it together. Alexander will conquer the world. I will be the ruler of the world. I'll bring everybody together. You know, all these different, now we have kinder, gentler versions of that. We'll all come together in one and hold hands. And it's great effort, but it will never succeed because God is sending the message, when the nations do come together, you'll know that it's me doing it. Because this is my plan, not your plan. This is my mission to go gather the nations. Now, in that, we have a task, and that's what we're going to talk about in this first session, because we can mess up this mission by not paying attention to the task that Paul lays up so clearly, which is to be all things to all people. It's much harder to be a diverse group, right? All those things, all the definitions, all those things that Octavia was talking about, you know how I cannot worry about any of those? I'll just go get people that look like me, think like me, act like me, grew up like me, and we'll all go over here, and we don't have to worry about any of those definitions. Right? Cultural appropriation. Ha! We all have the same culture. Let's party. It's easier. But it's not God's plan. Right? And then we're gonna we're gonna leave kind of the love for others later. The, the ultimate picture of God's uh, people is persons from every tribe, every language, every people, Amen. every nation. That's the gathering of the nations. It needs to be on display. Yeah. That's what God wants humans to see. In Ephesians 2, it says this is how God shows his wisdom to the world through the many the manifold or the many colored church that he has, the many sided. He wants people to look and go, oh. That's what God is up to. That's different. The world can't do that. What is culture? It's a socially learned system of knowledge and behavioral patterns shared by a certain group of people. In other words, it's a way of life to which a particular society adheres. It's like, this is what we all do and it works. Right? So we all assume, and culture is vast. Literally, I could go through your day and point out to you how almost everything you do is dictated by culture. Like, everything? Well, first of all, where are you sleeping? That's determined by your culture. Is it a bed or is it a mat? If you're a young parent, is a kid in bed with you or are they in another room? See, that's all cultural. When you... When you get up, how do you groom yourself? How, what do you wear? How do you greet one another? How do you communicate? How do you think? How do you, all of these things are culture, right? And culture is neither good nor bad. It's a vehicle. But the problem with culture is, um, well, it's not a problem, but the, I should say the reality of culture is this. It's what becomes normal, right? Normal is a powerful word. Because we don't tend to like abnormal. So we get a way that seems right, and then we assume that that's normal, that's the right way to do it. In fact, that's the human way to do it. Mm -hmm. 
And if you do it differently, it's not just a different way. It's wrong. It's inhuman. Mm. And so we start to have conflict over it. Does that make sense? Yeah. You with me? Okay. So there's two levels of culture. One is the above-the-surface stuff. This is the stuff that's easy to see. There's practices, food, clothing, rituals, greetings, music, art, you know, that kind of stuff. And oftentimes when we speak of being cross-culture or culturally diverse, we're, we're talking about this area, right? And so we go to our Tex-Mex restaurants and we listen to different kinds of music and like, oh, I'm totally multicultural, man. I, I listen to Lil Wayne, you know? Five, four, three, two, all the one go. Let's see, I'm, I'm in there, all right? Nobody got that. This is an older crowd, all right? You got the five, four, three, two? No one? That's a, you got, you're with me, all right, dude. That's a basketball warm-up song now. That's like the anthem of the basketball season. Come on. So, but this is the level. Now, here's the thing. This is where the world tends to stop oftentimes or doesn't go beyond that. Or, but, but also, let me not just say the world is, oh, they're always doing it wrong and we're always doing it right. We tend to, in the church, we might, we might get to this level and then we go, oh, are we awesome? We're a diverse church. I mean, we sing Wade in the Water and every now and then, La Montaña. Oh. Right? Oh boy. We're diverse. <laughs> and that's good. But here's, here's the real challenge of a community is when we go to this level, the below the surface, the cultural values, the expectations, the attitudes, views on authority, personal space, modesty, gender roles, what family is, fairness, truth, respect, yeah. and the list could go on and on. These are the places we don't talk about that cause the conflict. Because we, we don't delve into these things, right? that make sense? Yeah. Now, I'm not going to do this. Usually this is where my wife shares. So you'll just have to wonder what the Isley brothers have to do with, with culture. But we'll move on. So Paul lays out, and he, he gives us in one beautiful little, not even a full sentence. He says, I have become all things to all people. Now, if you add up all of Paul's letters, depending on the translation, but uh, typically his verses in all of Paul's writings, he writes about 2,034 verses. Now, you pick a topic like marriage. Marriage is super important, right? Do you know, guess how many verses Paul addresses the idea of marriage in all of his letters? 2,034 wow. verses. How many verses does he talk about marriage? Less than 10. 20. Less than 10, 20? Oh, you undersell Paul. Come on. Marriage is important. 68 verses. Now, how much does he address the gathering of the nations, being all things to all people, and cultural awareness and issues within the church? 1,500. That would be three quarters of his letters. That would be amazing. 634. Almost 10 times the amount he addresses marriage. And yet, how many lessons have you ever heard at a conference on cultural intelligence or competence or something of that nature? Not many, right? Isn't that crazy? And yet, Paul spends a lot of time training the church in these issues because he knows if the mission is to gather the nations, you're going to have issues in the area of becoming all things to one another. Now, and I'm not knocking this as a virtue, but kind of the best approach that the world has come up with is tolerance. Tolerance is the big T of all things, right? We tolerate, we tolerate, tolerance, tolerance. Paul actually goes way beyond tolerance to a whole other level of self-work. Because tolerance means I can sit over here in my comfortable little world and sort of tolerate, you just do your thing and I'll just, I don't need it, whatever, just go do it, right? And that's kind of tolerance. 
But tolerance doesn't really demand a whole lot from me. What Paul calls for is participation in the kingdom of God. I'm not just going to tolerate who you are, your way of doing things, or your culture. I'm going to bend myself to it. Amen. I want to know about it. I want to learn about it. I want to respect it. I want, I want it to become part of who we are together. I don't want to just have a default culture where we do it my way, and you're welcome as long as you come and do it my way. That's not being all things to all people. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'll give you a simple little example to illustrate this. When we, My wife and I, we spend a lot of time ministering in the churches in Africa, all around the continent, and we love it. And the way um, singing and worship is done there is a little different than it's done in the Midwest. Is that fair to say? Okay. I'm gonna, I don't want to assume anything about Maine, but I'm going to assume that perhaps it, you've been here and you've been to Lagos. Is it a little different? It's different, right? So you go to a Western African country, and one of the things you might see, for instance, is if the pulpit is here, the front row might not be until where those windows are. And you'll walk in and you'll go, why is there so much space? Oh, because when the music starts, they're going to need that space. (laughs) Because worship is an entire body experience in that culture. Right? Like everybody's doing their whole thing. And, you know, and I, I love it. And so I'm like, you know, sometimes my wife is like, no, you don't. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm doing it with you. All of that. And so, but then we'll come back to the Midwest and we'll be like, okay, we're going we're gonna to do this song. You know, let's go. You know, we're, we're going to, you know, Joe, 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 Joe. And let's do this and. And you'll get, you know, people yeah. from these Norwegians in Minnesota, and they're like, <laughs> but the response will often be, and we'll hear this, why do you got to, that's not me, why do you got to make me do things that are outside of, like, that's not fair to ask me, I don't like that kind of music, I didn't grow up with that kind of music, why would you make me put, and they don't want to do it. But what they don't stop and think about is the fact that it has never occurred to them that they have brothers and sisters around them whom they have been making them do it their way all along. And they have brothers and sisters who are standing there, standing there going, my heart longs to worship like that. See, what Paul calls us to is participation. It calls us to get out of our comfort zone. It calls us to learn about one another, to go beyond. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I'll just say this really quickly. This is kind of covered in my book, so I'm going to try to skip over this to save a little time. But culture and ethnicity were one of the main causes of conflict in the New Testament. It's everywhere. And so when people tell me, like, why do we got to talk about this stuff? Why can't we get onto the gospel and just talk about that? It's like, have you read the New Testament? <laughs> and if we understand that the inherent in the gospel is the declaration that Jesus is king, and so there's this call to gather the nations, then I will know that being all things to all people is actually a key pillar of the gospel, not a side issue. It's the way, it's our task that we're given within that to maintain it. And so you see all these different conflicts. Again, I'm not going to go into these in detail. Um, But you see them dealing with it. This is kind of from Acts 6, where they... They hear that there's a cultural divide, and the leaders deal with it immediately. And if they hadn't, it could have led to all sorts of these different struggling feelings of being marginalized, being ignored, and ultimately, you know what? Let's form our own group. Wow. Because that is the easier route. Right. And in fact, we've seen that take hold in the evangelical world in the last 30 years. There's something specifically called the HUP theory, H-U-P, the homogenous unit principle, which means if you want a church to grow fast, find your target audience, speak to it, deal only with that group, be one small group, whether it's socioeconomic or racial or ethnic or whatever, and do that and you will flourish and grow. And you know what? They're right. That is a faster way to grow. But that's a, it's a problem. 
Because, let, let me give you an example real quick here. What would you think of if I said the sentence, I am going to shoot my sons? Now I'll give you another sentence, right? Remember that first one. I'm going to shoot my sons. Second sentence, I'm going to smother my wife. What do those two sentences have in common? Violence. <laughs> Jail time. Now let me give you a third sentence, right? I'm going to shoot my sons. I'm going to smother my wife. Go make disciples. What do those three sentences have in common? Action. Love. Love. <laughs> Somebody help this brother with his Here, Here's the thing. None of those sentences is complete. See, I'm going to shoot my son's attacks. I'm going to smother my wife with, a, with attention. Go make disciples of all nations. Not just go make disciples. That's a different mission. That is not related to the promises of Abraham and to the promises of Isaiah and the prophets. Isaiah said, I won't gather the nations. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. That's connected to the promise that's been standing out to God's mission since Genesis, right? So if I think the task is just go make disciples, I can go do whatever. If I got a group of just all white guys that are 47 years old, and like to listen to, you know, 90s hip-hop, that would be a really cool church. I think we can all agree with that. Cool church with cool music. But, that, right? We're all on board. But, that would not be the mission that God gave us. And the gathering of the nations is harder. Okay? Now, again, just really quickly, there are three aspects of kingdom, of culture and the kingdom. Some aspects of culture do need to be rejected when we come into Christ. They're, you know, hyper Western American individualism does not work in biblical Christianity. Right? We've got we to reject that. We've seen cultures where um, it's part of the culture where the men... Do not engage with children. That's the woman's work. The the man doesn't deal with the woman or with the children. That's what the woman does. Well, that's not biblical. You come into Christ, you've got to give that part of the culture up and you've got to change over, right? Paul also talks about what we've been talking about, the part of culture where where we participate, we appreciate, we embrace one another's culture. And that results in a transformed or new way of doing things, a new culture. That's our goal. Um, One of the reasons I think that Luke highlights in uh, the book of Acts, he says the disciples were called what first, where? Christians first at Antioch. Very good. You can all remain members. You know that that answer, right? They were called Christians first at Antioch. Antioch, the ancient city, was, was a melting pot of people. It had all different sort of ethnicities. It had all different sorts of people groups, but Antioch in the first century was marked by sectarian violence. There were racial riots, ethnic riots, all sorts of things going on. And, and they believed now that Antioch was actually split into 18 separate ethnic sections. Wow. And they all kind of stayed to themselves. And into that comes this church. And you, you can tell by the names of the leaders in the church that they were really diverse. The church was diverse. And I believe what Luke is trying to indicate to us by saying the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, is potentially, it, it seems like what it is, is that people in Antioch were going, what are these people? We don't know what ethnic group they are. They're not an ethnic group. They're not just this group. They're not just that group. We don't know what to call them. So they had to come up with a social name, their little Christ followers, because they couldn't label them with the ethnicity. I think that's our challenge today is when people walk in, they go, what kind of culture is it? Is that a white church? Is it a black church? Is it a Latino church? Is it a, I don't know what that is. I've never seen that before. It's a, it's, it's kind of all things to all people, right? It's a little counterintuitive because oftentimes we think if you talk about or focus on division, you're going to bring it about. But I don't know why we think that. 
Because if you have something that's going to divide us already and you don't deal with it, then the divisions stay there. We have to talk about it and do that difficult work. Now, let's talk about dominant and non-dominant cultures. This is, and, and it's not, uh, I'm not demonizing dominant cultures, I'm not saying it's bad or whatever, but this is just a sociological fact, that if you have a mix of cultures, and one is dominant, this is what it's going to look like. And, and most often, one will be dominant, whether it's uh, historically because it had power, or it's because sheer numbers and majority, but cultures in the world will tend to be dominant. We have to recognize this dynamic and fight against it to be all things to all people. Dominant cultures tend to be unaware of their own culture. It's part of the privilege of being in the dominant culture's culture. I don't have a culture. What are you talking about? We don't have culture in this church. We don't deal with culture. We just follow the Bible. We don't, you know, Americans, we don't have a culture. <laughs> yeah, right? And I've even heard, I don't know, you know, if you've ever heard this, but I've heard you know, uh, white brothers and sisters of mine go to like a wedding of say an East Indian person and they'll come back and be like, oh, such a beautiful culture. I wish we had culture like that. We just, we <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you kind of do. And it tends to gobble up every other culture around it. So you need to be aware, okay? Because if we're not aware, then that leaves the status quo in place and it, it has the effect of squashing all the other cultures around it. We don't need to talk about culture. Well, it's really nice when you're in first place. It's like a team in first place going, I don't think we need to play out the rest of the games in the regular season, right? Let's just call it where it is, right here. That seems fair. And the teams behind them are like, no, let's actually not do that. See what I'm saying? Okay. Non-dominant groups are typically very aware of their own cultural identity as well as that of the dominant group because you have to just to survive. Because they're, they have the majority, they have the power. And so non-dominant groups will very easily sort of be able to move into this culture and then back to their own. And, you know, I, I, will, I watch my wife do that. Like, my wife is very good. She can sort of, she will get on the phone and I can tell she's talking to, like, a white disciple or something, and then like her mom will call, and that's a whole nother like whole nother world that, and she just moves in and out, right? And she knows how to. She can navigate going to my family much easier in the early days than I could navigate going into her family, right? Because I was just like, I, why don't we just do it my way? How about that? That's that's, that's the easiest way to get around this, right? Um, so the non-dominant group is more adept at adopting um, and will uh, adopt to those norms for a while. Now it's easy, I had some, just recently we talked about some of this and I had the guy who's in the ministry come up and go, why wouldn't it just be that the majority rules? You know, that, that seems right, you just do it the majority way. It's like, yeah, well, but that's not all things to all people. Are you listening to anything I said? That's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> Who was that person? I'm not giving a name You don't know him. Trust me. Now, dominant groups will tend to view people within their own group, they view their own group as individuals. And so if there's aberrant behavior within their group, they will look at that person and go, well, that's contrary to our values. What a poor, sick, ill individual. Mm. Bad choices he made. Mm. But they will look at the non-dominant or the other groups and, and perceive them as a whole. Mm. Right? Yeah. And so if somebody from that group acts in an aberrant way, what's wrong with that group? Mm. And, and they now become a representative for that group. You see that, that yeah. dynamic, right? You know what I'm saying? And so it's really easy to do because I know the values of my own group. And so if somebody steps outside and they go, oh, what's wrong with that person? They're, they're sick. But if somebody from another group does it, well, they're all terrorists. They're all this. They're all that. Why? And, you know, why doesn't somebody in that group step up and deal with this problem as though that's even a possibility, right? But you, you, so if we, if we use that example in the United States of America and we say white Western is the dominant culture, when somebody 
that's white and Western commits a crime, you don't have somebody stepping up and going, when are the white leaders going to step up and speak to this community that is clearly out of control? That's just a normal reaction, right? So we've got to make sure that we don't fall into that with the church. Because the dominant group is more unfamiliar with the non-dominant group, they're more easily upset and offended by it and its behaviors. And, and here's a truth that kind of runs all through this theme, is when all you've ever experienced is superior, superiority or dominance, equality feels like oppression. So people start saying, hey, let's let the plague feel a little bit. Whoa, whoa, why do we gotta, why are we trying to get rid of my culture? Why, what's wrong? Why don't they have to bend too? In fact, that same guy said that sense to me. He's like, why don't they have to bend sometimes? Why are you just talking about the dominant culture? Did you hear the part where I said they're bending all the time? And we're just asking for inclusion here? Okay. In fact, I'll tell you this. If you come to church... And culturally, I'm not saying you love everything that happened, but culturally, it feels comfortable to you all the time. You probably have a church that has some work to do in being multicultural. Because if you're never uncomfortable, that means you're doing it one way. Right? Right. And so if you can go to people that are in the non-dominant group and say, are there times when you sort of feel like an outsider culturally? And just listen, because I bet they'll answer. So if these aren't dealt with, if it's not paid attention to, it'll lead to a growing but quiet discontent on the part of the non-dominant group. And the dominant group will grow increasingly out of touch. Studies have shown, I've kind of studied through history and found out that there there have been other multi-racial movements, church movements in the United States, and the vast majority of them fall apart about after about 30 to 40 years because they, I, my theory is they don't pay attention to this cultural part. They just get all caught up in the hysteria of, oh, we're, you know, we're all together. But they don't do the task of being all things to all people, and it will fall apart. Unchecked cultural predominance or indifference starts to walk and quack like the duck of prejudice in the eyes of others. Right? If I, who here is a vegetarian? Anyone a vegetarian? Some days. Some days. <laughs> so, let, let's say you were a hardcore vegetarian, okay. right? Yes. And I invited you over to my house mm-hmm. for steak once a week. <laughs> How long before you would start to go, either he's a jerk or he hates me? Right? I mean, or you just don't care. Right? right? Like, why would you keep, you know, why would you keep and not pay attention to my need? If you keep not paying attention to other people or including them, eventually they're going to say, like, forget this. Mm. I'm just tired. Or they'll stay out of obligation, but they'll always be looking like, oh, I kind of want to leave. I think we want to become a church where everyone feels welcome and no one feels at home. Go, wait, shouldn't we feel at home? Should we? No, because at home everything is done your way. <laughs> Unless you have a wife. <laughs> little joke. Little humor there, ladies. Hey, you were there, ladies. <laughs> no, but all things to all people means I'm going to bend something. And we want everyone to feel welcome. We want everyone to feel included. Because we're, we're, we're having an eye towards what God wants us to become and not just an expression of what we are. Yeah. So in Minnesota, we're working right now really to develop a Latino culture. We have about five people who speak Spanish <coughs> in the first language. We've started to sing songs in Spanish every week. Why? Because Five out of 300? No, because we want everybody who comes in to know that we're going to make an effort to be all things to all people. Yeah. We're going to sing songs in different languages. We, we pray in different languages because we're the gathering of the nations. Not just one day a year on an international Sunday. We try to do it regularly and include it, have it part of what we do. Yeah. Ethnocentrism is the view 
basically that the way I do things is right, and it's the norm, and it's superior, and your way is wrong. That's a killer in the Christian community. Now, multiculturalism is not assimilation. It's not, if you remember the old Star Trek show, The Borg, you know, you will become one of us. You know, come in and do it like us. I gotta get rid of the Star Trek references. That's really old. This is a young group. Resistance is futile, that's right. Exactly. Come in and you, to be like us, you need to be like us. Yeah. To be with us, you need to become like us. Wow. True multiculturalism is about accommodation. And it's recognizing that we don't include people just to like, well, we got to you know, keep them happy and we got to make it look good. And it, it's a recognition that if I don't include your view, I'm actually poorer for it. Mm-hmm. I am hurt by not having your way added into our community. We can clash over all kinds of things from top to bottom, status, task, communication, power distance, views of family. Oh my goodness, when my wife and I were first married, that was like, my family was my mom, my dad, my sister, me. Her family seemed to be everyone we met on the street. And, and she, was, she came in, I remember one time, and she was like, we're going to a funeral this weekend. I was like, who died? And she, and she wanted this song. It was like her granddaddy's brother's, like something or other's sister's son's. It was like six steps to get there. And I'm like, I don't even know these, these people. Why would I go to that funeral? And she looked at me and she's like, because they're family. And I was like, not that. No, <laughs> but well, that's what I thought. That's not what I said. What I said was, okay, hon. Um, <laughs> but her family is this massive, expanded thing, right? My my vision of family was this big. We did that recently. In fact, in Minnesota right now, we were. I was just explaining. We we're doing a series on family, and one of the things we did is. We talked about how people can have different views and we brought six or seven different people on stage and said, when I say family, what do you think? Is family a big thing? Is it a small thing? How, when we say the church is like a family, what does that mean? And what are ways where this church feels like a family and doesn't feel like a family to you? And we got wildly different answers and said, okay, now, see, we don't think about that, right? We just said, hey, we're all a family, but we have such different views of what that means that some people can come in every week and go, this church is just like a family. And others walk out going, this church ain't nothing like a family that I expect. Right? If you come from a collectivist culture and now you're called into being a Christian in an individualist-dominated church, you are never going to be cared for or taken, you know, loved the way you need to be if people aren't aware. Does that make sense? Yeah. Weddings and funerals, we, we, we marry differently, we, we mourn differently, we, you know, so many different areas here. Let me give you one example. The way cultures view time. Now, one, is, one broad cultural uh, approach is called monochronic. Chronic. Every time I do workshops, somebody comes to me and goes, I'm monochromatic. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I think the church should be monochromatic. No, that's color. That's color. Monochronic culture, C time is linear. It's logical, it's straight. A, you go to B, you go to C. Everything should start on time. Time is the focus. Let's get it done. Let's be on time. It's respectful to be on time. You keep a schedule. You get it done. You go. I don't want interruptions. I don't want changes. I want everything to go in a certain sort of way. Okay? Then you have polychronic cultures. For polychronic cultures, time is cyclical. In monochronism, if you've ever heard sayings like time is money, you know, things like time's a waste, and polychronic is more like, there's plenty of time. (laughs) Why do today what you can do tomorrow? Time comes around and goes around. It's an unlimited resource. What matters in life is relationship. 
I wouldn't bend to the clock and cut off a relationship time. I just wouldn't do that. You can do many things at the same time. There's no rush based on time. The mind and your mind gets wired that way. Why would I? I, I people from truly polychronic cultures don't even have that internal clock, mm-hmm. right? You can make interruptions all over the place. My my wife and I typify this again. Now this may be difficult for you to guess which one of us is monochronic and which one is polychronic. I will confess. I'm the monochronic. I get this internal pit in my stomach if we're going to be two minutes late somewhere. Right? Like, you've got to do, like, let's go. I can estimate how long things are going to take. My wife will be like, I'm going to do this and this and this and then go there. It's like, there's no way you're going to, how do you, because she literally does not have an internal clock in her head. It was not wired in. So, so again, we'll go to, this is illustrated. We're a young married couple, right? And we're going to go to my family's Christmas Eve party. And it's, it's basically like, you know, in essence, here's how to, and we still have this thing every year, Christmas Eve. We get an invitation. How else are you going to know when it starts if you don't get a formal invitation? Starts at 4 o'clock. Food served at 4.30. You hang out from 4 to 4.30. Food served at 4.30, you're already cracking up. You know, children's activities at 5. We read the night before Christmas at 5.30. We open gifts at 6. We're out by 6.30. See you next year. And my wife would be like, what kind of party is that? In fact, one year she showed up at like 5.15. We were there because it's out of town for us. And she went, I'm going to run and do this and get back. And I was like, what are you you doing? And she's like, oh, I'm I'm here. Let's start. And I'm like, it's half over. (laughs) Now on Thanksgiving, we'll go to her family for lunch. (laughs) People ain't even there when we get there. (laughs) We'll get there at 11.30. No one's even there. Then you start cooking by one o'clock. By three you go in and they're just starting to cook things. And, and I'm like, when are we going to, you know, eat? And then, and then, like literally one year, I remember it was like seven o'clock and we still hadn't eaten. I was like, when are we going to have lunch? <laughs> and she was like, oh, we're just chilling. And, you know, like juicy and hooky and I've got to run up to the store and get cornbread and then we'll be I'm like why wouldn't they have brought cornbread y'all know you were going to make it <laughs> now where it starts to get real in conflict is I would say things like can we can we go like what are we going to eat can, it's time I, I have plans you know like I wanted to get home and take my shoes off and <laughs> things like that <laughs> And she would go, do you not like my family? And I'd be thinking I'd like them a lot more if they would serve food. <laughs> but what I realized, and, and I, I, did, I tried this one year. I said, you know what? Maybe if you ladies would let me come in, I could, I could teach you a system. Like, yeah, you're like, danger, don't do it. I was like, I could teach you, like, like, give you a schedule of when to start and how to get, and she was like, you are so missing the boat. And I was like, what? And she's like, we don't want to be efficient. We want to be together. And I was like, that's still hard for me to wrap my mind around. Like, we don't want to be efficient? Like, what do you think? Right. Like, I don't compute this. Melting out. Here's another one that can have an impact in the church. Spiral communication, linear communication. Spiral communicators. Now, sociologists will say this is not always runs across these lines, but typically you find this in communities of generational poverty, and you find linear communication in uh, um, middle class type uh, Upbringing. Spiral communicators, it's more about entertainment and interaction with one another. So you kind of, if there's A, B, C, and D to a story, you might start at like C and then circle around up to back to B and then go to E and then you're around and, and there's supposed to be an interaction where you're like, and then what happened? Oh, now wait a minute. What, 
how did they get in that position? And so my, my wife is definitely from that. She'll tell these stories all over and go over here and up here and down here. And you're like, and I just had to learn to like, just, just, just sit there. And it's going to make sense eventually. <laughs> because the way I was taught to communicate is A, you always start at the beginning. A, then B, then C, then D, then E. Now, that's a story, right? Now, I, now we're communicating and I can follow. But I've actually known situations where there was guys in the ministry, the evangelist was a linear communicator, the, the, uh, the, the, the team minister was a spiral communicator, and eventually the evangelist fired this guy because he's like, I just can't follow what he's saying. He makes no sense to me at all. And I, I just can't work with him. And I'm like, and it was like two years before, when, you know, when they were telling me, and I was like, oh, if I would have known that, I could have helped you guys figure each other out how to communicate. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes these people will say to these people, just get to the point. <laughs> right? You're talking, just get to the point. <laughs> and it can cause conflict. <laughs> um, I won't go into this, but, the, the, you know, money, personality, all these different things can impact culture. Here's, here's the thrust of it. Paul says, hey, we want to be all things to all people. On the very next thing he says on the heels of that, he talks about going into strict training. In other words, this is not going to be easy work. Yeah. It's, it's difficult. Now, we like this passage, but we often sort of take it out of the context, the right. immediate context mm -hmm. that Paul is talking about, yeah. which is being all things to all people wow. so we can help them be saved and stay wow. part of God's family. This is going to be really hard. Yeah. <clears throat> and we want to be, to reiterate, we want to be Revelation 5 focused on who God wants us to become and not just who we are. That's our tendency is like, well, I just want to express myself who I am. That's not being all things to all people. All things to all people means I'm going to look at who we want to be as a diverse, inclusive community where everyone feels like their culture is valued too. They can express themselves. They can speak. And they have an equal place at the table. So a cross-cultural church will, we got just a couple more minutes and then we'll take a break, will value diversity. It will self-assess culturally. It will become aware of the cultural differences and how they influence interactions. It will incorporate these understandings into the life of the church and then be willing to modify community life. How do we need to change? Let's take this seriously. Now, I'll, I'll stop right here for one second to say, as we've done this workshop for the last couple of years, people will come in or come up afterwards in churches and go, we're with you, makes sense, the what, makes sense, we agree, how do we do this, right? And that's what my upcoming book, All Things to All People is, is a really sort of detailed, specific examination of how can churches be multicultural and inclusive in, in their communication, in their music, in their, you know, um, in, the, in just the way they, in general, approach leadership and life together and their approach to things that happen in the world and all of that. So we try to get in and go through that. Cross-cultural values. Number one, give the benefit of the doubt. When, when my wife and I were first married, and, and still to this day, she would, she would just come up. Now, you're going to be outraged by this, so I want you to just be calm. She would come up and she would just go, will you scratch my back? <laughs> Right? <laughs> and I think, it's so rude. You don't just directly ask for something like that. Now you socially obligated me to it. I have to say yes. There's no choice. Like, that's, it's pushy, and it's rude, and it's assumptive. The proper way to do it would be like, man, does my back itch today? <laughs> now, that proper social request because now if I do that I'm in your presence you need to decide whether to accept my request yep. and say oh let me scratch it for you or you can just let me go on my way and save face and nobody's lost anything nobody's had to say no 
that's how you communicate, right? <laughs> and so I would walk in and be like, man, is my neck killing me today? And my wife would walk out of the room thinking, if you want some, just ask for it. You know, manipulate and hint around and all that stuff. <laughs> so it was like 10 years of me thinking, I love my wife, but she's rude. Until I was in a cross-cultural ministry class, and I read some of this, and I ran into my wife's, uh, into the kitchen, and into my wife, and I said, you don't mean to be rude when you ask to scratch my back, or ask me to scratch your back, and she's like, what? I was like, no, 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 just never mind, but I, I'm with you now, okay? Now, to this day, after 20-some years, it still feels rude to me when she does it. But I've learned to give her the benefit of the doubt, and I've learned to look for what the action means in her culture. Yeah, that's good. In her culture, she's being respectful. And, and there's, there's so many times, I bet you, once a day I have this conversation with somebody in the church, look for what that action meant in their cultural background. And that helps a lot, right? Even though it feels not right, it feels rude to know, like, oh, they were, they were trying to be respectful. And they actually were being in their world. We can interpret that. Allow each other to make mistakes. In a cross-cultural community, we will blow it. We'll say the wrong things. Be humble. That's, that's what we're looking for. Is you know, Cultural competence is a thing, but it's a destination. It's not an arrival. Cultural humility is what we're going for. It's like, let me learn. Come on. Um, be sensitive in this direction. Don't be so sensitive in this direction. And when we're all doing that, it starts to work. If I'm trying to be sensitive to you, but not so sensitive if you make a mistake and be more gracious than sensitive, then it starts to work. Right. But when only one is doing that, it starts to break down. Right. Don't assume that your point of view is the correct one from a cultural point of view. Be proactive, don't wait until you have conflict. Get out of your comfort zone. It's demanded by being all things to all people. And to me, this is a big one. Relax. <laughs> because I get that these can be tense areas to deal with, right? Like, yeah. right? Important questions. I'm just going to focus on, on the fifth one. You can read the first four. But the fifth one is, I think, really key. What do you mean by that? Simple question, right? We've got to become a community where we can do that. When somebody does something and it just seems off, it seems rude, it seems off-putting, it seems, just go, hey, can I ask you a question? What do you mean by that? Because it, it felt rude. My, my wife now has learned to do that. She's avoided so many conflicts in our leadership group because she, she's the only African-American woman in our leadership group, right? And there have been so many times where I'm, I just keep it real. I say like how it happens and I'm sorry. She'll come in so many times and be like, I do not understand white people. I don't know why them women. Like, I have had it with these white women. And I'm like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. What happened? Let's talk it through. And she'll say something like, okay, okay, okay. So when white people do that, here's what they mean. And so she's now learned to just call up these sisters and be like, can you tell me something? What do you mean by that? Why did you do that? Because it didn't feel right. And then they've talked it through and it's great. Right? Mm. So just, and not be offended by that question. What did yeah. you mean by that? It felt rude. Oh, no, no, no. In my culture or the way I was raised. And then we can start to come to an understanding. Right? But otherwise, we just sort of stew in our hurt feelings and we get nowhere. Yeah. Here's the bottom line Jesus gave us the mission to gather the nations. That means it'll be a diverse group, that means it's going to be harder. Our task in that is to be all things to all people. But above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins and cultural mistakes. So let's go ahead and take a break. Um, we'll come back. I'm just going to leave that up there um, for you to look at during the break. Great. Um, and then we'll come back in a minute.